Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Marissa T. Cohen. Dr. Cohen is a relationship researcher, marriage and family therapist, and teacher of college-level psychology courses. She's also the author of From First Kiss to Forever, A Scientific Approach to Love, a book that relates relationship science research to everyday experiences and real relationship issues confronted by couples. Her work has been quoted in publications such as Bustle, Good Housekeeping, The Cut, In Style, The Washington Post, Men's Health, and Women's Health. She has also appeared on many podcasts and radio shows to discuss the psychology of love and ways in which we can improve our relationships. In the episode, Marissa explains common misconceptions couples have about what makes a happy, successful relationship, advice for growing and changing with your partner rather than growing apart, tips for being more successful at online dating, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, Dry Farm Wines. Did you know that alcohol manufacturers aren't required to post ingredients or nutrition facts on their bottles? That's how they're able to sneak sugar and other additives into their products. Fortunately, Dry Farm Wines has come up with a solution. Their natural wines are lab-tested to ensure they're sugar-free, lower in sulfites and alcohol, and also free from other industrial additives. Since I've grown accustomed to drinking natural wine, even the top-rated expensive conventional wines can give me headaches and make me feel gross. If you've never tried Dry Farm Wines, you're going to be immediately hooked by the flavor and quality of their products, as well as their top-notch customer service. To get a bottle of Dry Farm Wines for just a penny, visit dryfarmwines.com slash thehealthinvestment or click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Marissa. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Marissa. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I know you've had quite the morning already, and so I appreciate you being here. For those who are listening off air, we were just talking. Of course, when you sit down to record a podcast, the city comes to cut part of your tree down. Yes, yes. So we've got um, some sort of tree chipper and lots of chainsaws happening in front of my house right now, but hopefully hopefully quiet from now on. Hopefully quiet. Yeah, I can't hear anything. So this is good news. Hopefully, hope fingers crossed it works out. Exactly. 
But I would love if you could start off by telling us a bit about your background and specifically what led you to become a relationship scientist and dating coach. Sure. So um, I have kind of a non-traditional background that actually led me here. And I began my career as a full-time academic. So I have a PhD in educational psychology with a focus on learning development and instruction. So basically, my career kind of started out looking at how students learn and what motivates them um, to want to succeed in school. And I began my career as an assistant professor in the psychology department at a small college in Brooklyn. And I was teaching all of those classes that psychology majors have to take but often don't love, such as experimental psychology, statistics, and research methods. So my goal was pretty much to get them engaged in the material. And to do that, I would pull from a variety of different subfields, educational psychology or neuropsychology. And then I realized that as soon as I began to discuss relationships, that's when there was buy-in. That's when my mm-hmm. students got really, really interested. And I was, you know, there's something to this. So in fall 2014, around then, I co-founded a relationship science lab, which basically focuses on all facets of relationships from an academic perspective. So really studying what makes some relationships survive and thrive and what makes them fail. And from there, I pretty much started to do relationship science talks. I wrote a book on that topic. And um, I just fell so in love with looking at relationships and distilling the science in a way that people can use it to directly impact their relationships. So I left higher ed, went back to school, so from teacher to student, to pursue a degree in marriage and family therapy. And now I am both a marriage and family therapist, but I still do a lot of research on couples. That's really fascinating, especially that lab you speak of. I'm really, I think probably a lot of people are interested in the science behind relationships because we all have relationships in one way or another. Even if it's not a romantic relationship, you have relationships with parents and friends and siblings. Um, So is your work in, in that lab, is it mostly romantic relationships or do you also can you apply your learnings to other relationships as well such a great question so um we did focus primarily on romantic relationships though um some of our studies did cover other types of relationships like platonic relationships um but a lot of the principles that we would learn from our studies which would be about you know creating a depth of connection or how to you know effectively improve communication these are principles that can be applied to, you know, relationships with family members or friends or work colleagues. Um, so a lot of the principles do apply. Mm-hmm. And also really fascinating to me to apply science to this because I feel like for a while, I think more so now people are applying kind of behavioral science to relationships. Mm-hmm. I just interviewed a behavioral scientist last week who was really fascinating. Um, And I'm really into this stuff. I love reading books on psychology. And I was talking to him about, he said his favorite class in college was something to do with behavioral science. And then he pursued that as a career. And I said, that's so interesting because my favorite class in college was a psychology class, but then I never did anything with that. (laughs) So maybe, I don't know what I was thinking back then, Um, but I am just really, really interested in 
what makes people tick and the psychology behind all of that. And I actually used to be a teacher myself for 12 years. Um, but what I've, I think I'm trying to say is I, when I was kind of dating in my 20s, I wasn't ever thinking about the science mm-hmm. behind it. I was just thinking all the things you see growing up of it's this feeling and you know right away or it's this gut thing and you know it's all the feeling behind it mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. do you find that you come up against challenges when you try to introduce science to romantic relationships or are people pretty on board well as you said i think things are kind of shifting a little bit in that we really are looking at the behavioral science you know behind all different constructs like you're starting to see like a lot of research in the area of relationships and happiness and you know across the board um you know It's challenging because can relationships become like a mathematical equation? No, and nor would we want it to be because there is something to be said about like the magic behind love or or whatever that might be or that that interpersonal connection. And there's always going to be some random noise, which is basically that um, experience between two people that you can't quite capture in some sort of scientific formula or an equation. But a lot of the work that we do look at is, well, what is the psychology behind this? And relationship science as a field, I feel like it's gaining more and more traction um, in part because it is so multidisciplinary. So it isn't just the, what we would think of hard sciences. I mean, relationship science pulls from, you know, philosophy. It pulls from anthropology, it pulls from communication studies, and then we have things like psychology and biology, and it's really just trying to fully surround what is love, what is attachment, what is human bonding, what makes some relationships successful. And the great thing that we're starting to see now is that um, a lot of what we're learning is slowly being introduced into school curricula early on. So we're starting to see like even more social emotional learning. So children are learning about effective communication and they're looking at what they're learning about what a healthy relationship looks like, which I think is so important because, you know, growing up, I never got that information in any of my classes. Mm -hmm. Speaking of communication, I've heard that touted as the number one thing you need for a relationship to be successful. I've heard trust Mm -hmm. also in that same bucket. What would you say is the number one contributor to relationship problems? Because I'm sure that's also on the flip side, the number one contributor to relationship (laughs) success. Um, I'm going to go with openness and vulnerability. Ability. Um, and the reason why I'm going to go with that is because I think you made great points of, you know, two of the, the biggest contributors are things like communication and trust. And I think for both of those pieces, you need to have some openness and vulnerability. So openness is basically allowing you to be able to have those honest, you know, forthcoming conversations with your partner in which you turn towards your partner rather than turn away from your partner and you successfully navigate any difficulties that you might be facing. So, you know, being open to have 
that communication um, and the honesty that's involved with that is going to make for a successful couple. Conversely, the less open you are to engaging in those types of conversations, that's going to lead to more problems down the road. And the vulnerability is basically over time, you know, as you get more and more comfortable with your significant other, you are letting them in on your fears, wants, needs, desires. They're getting to know who the real you is and you're getting to know who your partner is at their core. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. What would you say, this is one of my favorite questions to ask every guest and listeners probably know this by now, but I love the misconceptions question of what do you think are some common misconceptions couples have about the idea of a happy relationship and marriage. Maybe we get these from fairy tales we watch as a child or from seeing other couples post on social media. But what are a lot of misconceptions floating around out there? Oh, there's a ton of them. And I like how you kind of said, you know, from this, from social media and, you know, one of the social media can be a wonderful thing and that it connects people. But on the other hand, it can also be very, very detrimental because a lot of the presentation of couples that are out there can make us sometimes judge our own relationship harshly. And these representations aren't necessarily even reality. It's like that hashtag relationship goals can be so, so detrimental. And a lot of misconceptions about relationships wind up getting reposted and repeated. And it makes people start to question, you know, what's going on in their relationship and what is quote normal. Um, Not that there is something that is normal. Each relationship looks different and that is okay. But um, some of those common misconceptions, one of them is pretty much like you should adapt like a tit for tat or one of those quid pro quo strategies in relationships. So it's, we're each putting in 50%. So we're each meeting each other in the middle and, you know, yes, while we do need reciprocity to maintain a relationship, The problem is, is that we shouldn't be, and I think John Gottman, who's an amazing researcher, actually uses this term, an emotional accountant, where you're Mm -hmm. basically kind of looking at, well, what did my partner do today? Therefore, I'm going to respond in kind. How much are they putting in and how much am I putting in? Because I'm sure as most listeners know, there are going to be times when you're going to need your partner to pull more of the weight in the relationship. Or there are going to be times when you're going to step up and you're going to pull more of the weight. And that's okay. And if you're in a secure, loving, trusting relationship, you're happy to do that. And you're not necessarily like keeping an Excel spreadsheet of who does what when. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one that's out there. Um, another one is, you know, that it's problematic to discuss or assign roles when it comes to responsibilities in the household. And I just want to be very, very clear about this. When it comes to things like division of labor or responsibility and chores, um, these need not fall along under any gender line. And these also um, do not have to be assigned and then set in stone. In fact, it's actually really helpful if you constantly renegotiate as the relationship changes and as you know other external variables change but it's actually really helpful when couples kind of have a proactive discussion of who's going to do what 
you know, and that could be things as simple as I'm going to load the dishwasher versus, you know, I'm going to be the one that's going to work outside the home and, you know, whatever, whatever those um, delineations of roles and responsibilities are, having that discussion is actually helpful so that you're both kind of clear on what you're looking for within your partnership. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think too, if you're assuming somebody else is going to do something, maybe because you don't like to do it, let's say taking out the trash mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then they're not doing it, but you've never talked about it, then that probably builds up resentment of, oh, why don't they just know to take out the trash, but maybe they're expecting you to do it. <laughs> so- oh, for sure. For sure. A lot of times we like, we think our partner's a mind reader and they mm-hmm. might like, that they should know what it is that we want to do, what we don't want to do. And that's why that it always comes back to that proactive, you know, communication is so, so helpful about this. Um, another major misconception is that opposites attract. And you hear that all the time. And it's not actually opposites attract, but it's birds of a feather that flock together. So we like people who are similar to us. Now, I don't mean that to have a successful relationship, your partner has to be a carbon copy of you. And in fact, that would probably get kind of boring. Um, There's something to be said that when we enter relationships, we pick up new hobbies, new interests from our partner. And in fact, that's something known as a self-expansion model. But when it comes to things that are like our worldview, our core values, that's where we really, really want to align. So the way in which we view the world and, you know, the more we align with our partner, the more we can navigate difficulties as they arise. What about in terms of personality? Would you say that's still opposites attract or it's just kind of a mixed bag? So what's interesting is that um, personality doesn't have as large of an effect on relationships as people are led to believe. So that's probably another misconception that's floating out there. And in fact, they've actually done research um, with, if anyone's heard of like the big five. So it's like openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and eroticism. So the big five personality factors. And they find that they really aren't correlated, strongly correlated to having a successful relationship if you match um, when it comes to your personality. And the reason for that is really because our personality is largely environmental and our personalities can change in different environments. Our personalities can change over time. What's more um, important in that is the biological component of it, which is known as temperament which is basically how we respond to new situations. And our temperament tends to be more consistent over our lifespan. And temperament is more so to do with, you know, um, are we slow to warm up to change um, in circumstance? Or are we easy to warm up, very adaptable and our flexibility? So when it comes to that, um, it's better to have a mismatch of people with similar temperaments. But personality is not that indicative. Oh, interesting. So a mismatch of temperaments. So you said slow to warm up to like a new situation. Mm-hmm. So that would be, let's say you're moving. I, I This comes to mind to me because I mm-hmm. moved across the country a, couple, a few years ago, but maybe one partner's more open to change and one's more resistant. Is mm-hmm. that how temperament would come out in a big 
life change like a move. Yes, yes. And and yeah. I, that's such a great point because you start to see it when there are big changes. That's kind of where you see like, you know, how adaptable is this person? So that flexibility to handle new situations, that's where you really want to see like both partners are kind of on the same page. Mm, interesting. Yeah, because I know my husband and I are very similar, I think, in a lot of our personality traits in terms of we both like to be around people, whether we have people over, or we go out to dinner with friends, and we both are pretty type A, and mm-hmm. we like things kind of orderly and clean, and we're both on time. And when people say opposites attract, sometimes I've thought about that. And if I was with somebody who was really messy and disorganized, didn't like to hang out with people, and... Uh, what was the other thing I said? And, oh, and it was late all the time. Mm-hmm. That would drive me nuts yeah, <laughs> on a daily yeah. basis. So the fact that we're very similar in a lot of those more, I guess, like personality ways, I think works for us. Yeah. And I feel like when people say opposites attract, they, they like look for um, more surface, like they're, they're talking about more surface level things. So um, this is a very like New York reference here, but I'm a Mets fan. My husband's a Yankees fan that's okay. I mean, you know, for the most part, <laughs> but yeah. like, again, that's something that's very on the surface. You don't have to like the same music. You can have one person who has like a certain hobby. And in fact, it's great when you have your own interests because you might wind up, you know, turning your partner on to something that they never knew interests them before. And like, again, going back to that idea of self-expansion model, but, um, it's again, the, the, the similarities you really want it to be with how we view the world. Um, mm-hmm. If we are someone who is very, very spiritual and or religious, it's also helpful if our partner is very spiritual and or religious, or at least open to that possibility. Um, this even is, you know, just with how we view, um, like even not to talk about polit- get into politics, but even our, our, you know, how conservative we are. If, if you match, that's always better. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. Now, back to the episode. Hmm. Do you advise then, let's say somebody's on all the apps and they're dating and they're still struggling to find the person they're going to be with long term, do you advise that they kind of jot down what are my values and views on life and then throw out maybe some of the more superficial things and really focus on, I need to find somebody who has these core similarities as me. I think that that's incredibly helpful, but just a couple of things that I want to say about that is that there's that piece of self-awareness 
that is so, so important in this, in that, you know, well, what are your core values and what are your beliefs and really getting a better understanding of who you are as an individual, what you want out of life, and then in turn, what you want out of relationships, that's important. Because, you know, it depends upon where we're at in life um, and how many, because we change. We sometimes change dramatically over time. And you might find a partner who is wonderful for you at that time, but then you wind up growing in different directions. And then that kind of just, you know, your, your relationship, there, there's a distance that happens over time. So it's really important to kind of check in with yourself first and get a good understanding of who you are and what you want. And then when you know that, if you're able to share that with a potential romantic partner, I think that that's very, very powerful. What do you do if you are already married and then you're growing apart over time? What do you advise for that couple? I think it depends in what ways you're growing apart. And, um, you know, the the first thing that just kind of comes to mind when you ask that question is, you know, people will come to me and say, like, it feels like the spark is gone. And then, you know, what's what's going on with that? And, you know, a little bit over time, the nature of our relationships change. If you think about the trajectory of a relationship, in the beginning, we're in that infatuation or that honeymoon stage, which in relationship science world, we actually call this period limerence, which is when, you know, we're viewing the world and our relationship through rose-colored glasses and everything that our partner does is absolutely wonderful. And even during this time, the frequency of sex is at an all time high. And, um, you know, we're, we're just completely carried away by this relationship. And then that's when we have like passionate love. And then over time, this starts to kind of decline a little bit and then we'll level off. But what's happening is hopefully, if this is going to be a long-term and loving relationship, you are building up a strong base of companionate or compassionate love, which is kind of like that strong friendship or the glue that holds a relationship together. Now, sometimes when this happens, when there's that dip in passion, people start to like, you know, get nervous and then that's, oh no, we're growing apart. It's not that you're growing apart, but it's that the relationship is changing and that is okay. So kind of, you know, finding what is the new normal and what feels comfortable for both of you. And then in that case, maybe it might be doing things like infusing passion, you know, doing things together, going out on date nights or prioritizing one another and spending quality time together. If it's other things that you're growing apart on over time, um, such as, you know, something to do with your values. Maybe one partner is wanting to spend a lot less time with family and, you know, the larger family system where the other partner is wanting to spend more time with their with their family, their in-laws and their, their you know, distant relatives. And this kind of is creating a lot of friction. In that case, I think it's always really, really helpful to go to therapy. I think that therapy can be extremely, extremely helpful for couples. And it gives you that that neutral third party to sometimes just pose questions and dig deep and, and help the two of you navigate, well, what are some of the underlying issues that may be 
you know, causing you to feel like there is this distance and what is kind of leading both of you to grow apart specifically with, with that particular value. Hmm. That's such a good point. Cause I think a lot of people, uh, maybe even, I don't know my generation. I, I think I'm on the cusp of millennial. I think of technically a millennial. I'm 37. I don't know. I always get confused by these, uh, whatever names for eras or wherever you were born. Yeah, same. But I think we're millennials. I think we're millennials. <laughs> so. I know. But it's like, I feel so different from some of the younger millennials, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like a weird, I feel like they should have had a cutoff. Somewhere. Right, anyway. right. There's a big grouping. A big... <laughs> There's a big grouping. But those older than millennials or maybe baby boomers, I feel like therapy used to be something mm-hmm. where it was, you had real problems if you went to therapy. And so it's this big looming thing that, you know, you don't, that's a bad thing maybe, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. thinking about therapy now in terms of in a relationship, you just get in so many kind of thought patterns and conversation patterns, the two of you, and then to have a third party come in who can pose new questions or kind of break you out of those patterns that you're in can be really incredible. Yeah. And I think therapy, the, you know, sometimes there is a stigma, um, but it can be so beneficial and, you know, you could be extremely proactive when it comes to therapy too, in terms of just going with your partner, just to strengthen your relationship and to just investigate ways in which the two of you can show your love, appreciation and and respect for one another in new ways. So it doesn't always imply that you are going to therapy because there's something wrong or there's some sort of problem, though, even if there is, that is okay. Um, People that are, you know, people that that say that there are no issues within the relationship or there are no problems, that to me is suggesting that they're probably just not having like depth with their conversations because, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in any relationship, you are two people who come from two different households who are probably raised differently. And you're going to, at some point, encounter something where you're just going to think of things differently or view things differently. And navigating that can lead to difficulty sometimes or can lead to disagreements and it's totally okay to have disagreements it's the way in which the disagreements are handled that's what's important what tips do you have for handling disagreements better for handling disagreements better it is always important to remember that you and your partner care about each other and that you're on the same team Even when it feels like you're not, um, when you're very, very passionate about something that your partner disagrees with, it is so, so important to remember at the end of the day, you want to be able to come together and, and, you know, find some sort of similarity in your viewpoints and then move forward from that point. So when it comes to having a disagreement, it's important that you're both in the right frame of mind to have the conversation. So, um, you know, sometimes people get very, very overwhelmed, especially when they're feeling like heated or extremely passionate about something or feeling like they're not being understood. And that's when you're going to see a person just kind of like flood or stonewall, which is essentially like they just shut down 
in the conversation and it looks as if like nothing is, they're not processing anything. And in that moment, it's because they really can't because they're just so, you know, flooded by, by hormones and overcome with emotions that it's important to be able to take a break. And that's why you can never force a conversation to happen. Um, both people need to be fully, fully present to have that conversation, which actually is, you know, another misconception of relationships is don't go to bed angry. Sometimes it's okay to go to bed angry because you can't just force people to have a conversation and come to a resolution just because you want the, you know, you want a quick and easy, simple answer that the, you know, both people need to be in a good place to be able to truly hear one another and understand one another's uh, viewpoint. And it's always important to treat your partner with respect because a lot of times when we get frustrated during an argument, we might fall into, you know, patterns that have worked for us in the past to kind of just like shut down and quote unquote, win the disagreement, or we might be critical or say something kind of harsh towards our partner to just kind of like, you know, hit them where it hurts. It's always, always important to kind of lead with respect and use eye language. Eye language is a really, really big one. And for people who are unfamiliar with eye language, that's when you focus on the behavior rather than the person. So you might say something like, you know, when you leave your clothes on the floor, I get upset because I'm already running late, trying to get ready for work in the morning, and I don't have the time to pick them up. And I also, you know, I might trip on them or something like that. So you're focusing on the behavior, which is your partner leaving their clothes on the floor, rather than simply saying something like, you know what, you're such a slob. Which that is, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, which is easy and people do it because they're feeling frustrated and it's like, oh, you are such a slob. But when you do that, what is your partner hearing? It's just that criticism. I'm a slob. She thinks I'm a slob. And at that point, they might just shut down or they might get defensive. But if you communicate what the issue is and how you want it to be resolved, all of a sudden, now you're approaching the conversation from a different angle and your partner's going to be more open to understanding what the issue really is and working with you to resolve it. I heard somewhere that if one person in a couple wins an argument, both people lose. Mm. Is that kind of what you're saying? If the goal shouldn't be to win, it should be to talk things out and come come to some type of mutual understanding? Yes. Yes. And it doesn't always need to be a compromise. And sometimes it shouldn't be a compromise because technically with a compromise, both people are giving something up. And in fact, it can be one person's, you know, we're going to go with one person's approach versus the other person's approach. But it should be like no winning because it's not a fight. Like we're not against one another. It's we're going to hear one another out. We are going to validate. Validation is so, so, so important where you're basically saying to your partner, I hear what you're saying. Like, I I recognize the fact that you are feeling frustrated and angry, or um, I understand this is how you feel about this particular issue. You don't necessarily need to agree. You don't necessarily need to feel the same exact way, but you are acknowledging your partner for how they feel or what they're thinking. Validation is not the same thing as affirmation. You don't need to agree, but you do need to acknowledge their experience. Hmm. 
So I understand you're feeling frustrated, but you're wrong. No, <laughs> yeah, 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 that pops out sometimes. <laughs> I've read uh, the opinion that too much is expected of modern relationships because your spouse now is really supposed to be your best friend and your therapist and your childcare and your coworker and your romantic partner. What are your thoughts on that? Do we have too many expectations now in modern relationships? Oh, yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Um, yes and no, because if you think back to it depends how we frame it, right? Like if you think back to like the history of marriage, hundreds of years ago, I think it was like land decisions, like marriages mm. were based upon land decisions. So that that's a lot of responsibility kind of kind of placed there. But, um, you know, now if you think about like modern marriages, um, yeah, I hear that is that many people want to not only find that person that they love and care about, but they want someone who's going to challenge them and lead to growth and, you know, lead to self-actualization. And, you know, this is, this is great. And that's wonderful. Um, you know, and I hear from a lot of people like, oh, my partner is, is my best friend, which is, which is wonderful if your partner happens to be your best friend. But I think we need to think about, the multitudes of different relationships that we have in our life. And, you know, we have different relationships. These different relationships are important for different things. So we have our familial relationships, our friendships, our work colleagues. Um, we don't need our partner to be our partner, our parent, and our best friend. And in fact, we really wouldn't want that. You know, we don't want to blur the lines and have our partner kind of take on like a parental role. And, um, I think the best way that I could probably answer this is something that's coming to mind is there's actually this amazing, amazing book by Shel Silverstein. Um, and it's called, I think it's, it's the missing piece meets the big O and it's actually there's, so there's two missing piece books and I believe this is the right one. It's the second book. And it's such a good book. I highly recommend it. Um, there's a YouTube animation of this one, uh, of this book, The Missing Piece Meets the Big O. And it's basically a piece that kind of looks like a wedge. Uh, and it's trying to find like its complement or its partner. And it tries to pair up with all of these other pieces and it doesn't quite fit in and it's just, you know, all alone. And then all of a sudden it meets this big O, which kind of looks like, um, oh, what was that? Like a, in the Pac-Man game, it kind of looks like a Pac-Man. So it's a circle, but it has that perfect piece size shape that's kind of carved into it. Hmm. And the missing piece asks the big O, you know, oh, like, this is perfect. Can I, can I join you? And the O, I'm not doing the story justice, but, but the O, <laughs> the O says something super profound, basically like, you can't roll with me, but you can kind of roll by yourself along with me. Basically to the point of like, you can't just fit in with me, but you can come along with me. So the Big O basically empowers the piece to try to roll. And then as it does this, it winds up smoothing out its own edges. So it no longer looks like this pie shaped piece, but the two of them are able to roll along together. So hmm. the moral of the story is basically that, you know, you don't need to 
fit into your partner. Your partner doesn't need to fit into your existing life, but rather you should be these two independent holes where you're further like pushing one another to grow, but you don't need one another because then that can lead to things like codependency, which is definitely, definitely what we don't want from relationships. Hmm. That's, that's really cool. I'll put a link to that YouTube animation in the show notes. I'll search for it after this. Um, are there any other books? Obviously, we'll link to yours as well. I'm sure you would recommend that book. But um, are there books that you would recommend that couples read that are some of your favorites that really uh, foster growth? Yeah, sure. So uh, Sue Johnson, who's actually a Canadian researcher, she is the founder of EFT, which is Emotionally Focused Therapy, which is something, it's based upon attachment research. And she's written, she has books that are out there for therapists, but she also has these two books that are amazing in explaining relationship science. And they're called Hold Me Tight, and love sense. And love sense is more so just kind of the science behind relationships. Hold Me Tight goes a little bit into her therapy model, but both are really, really great books. Um, And I think those are definitely worth a read. I also really love Attached, and I believe that's by Amir Levine. And that basically just looks at our attachment style and how that comes into play with relationships. And really anything by John and Julie Gottman from the Gottman Institute. Uh, One of my favorites, if you're just looking for something super, super practical, if you're in a relationship that you could do with your partner, they have this book called Eight Dates, which basically look, which it gives you kind of like ideas for activities that you should do for eight separate dates and the science behind why each of these dates will further enhance your relationship. Oh, cool. And then you just... If you do all eight and then you could kind of cycle back through all eight again and Mm -hmm. just continually. Yeah. Yeah. And it gives you, I'm trying to remember from, and I went through it and I did it and it was wonderful, but they have like, you know, one might be based upon like trust another might be based upon intimacy and they give you like different questions that you should go through with your partner during that date. And it's, it's really, really great because it allows you to spend quality time together, but also there's like depth in that connection that you're making. Hmm. What advice do you have for someone who's still in the thick of dating? Hopefully not in New York city or Los Angeles. (laughs) I say this speaking from somebody who lived in New York for 12 years. It's, it's crazy out there. Definitely Um, definitely difficult to date here. Yes. (laughs) Difficult to date. I think just big cities in general, but um, do you have any tips for being more successful specifically at online dating or Mm -hmm. maybe just dating in general? Um, first don't get discouraged. I know easier said than done. And trust me, um, I've been there and I was an online dater. So um, don't get discouraged. Listen to yourself and trust yourself. Dating fatigue is a real phenomenon. So if you are feeling like it is time for you to take a break from the apps, then do so. Because a lot of people feel like this pressure where they're just like, well, if I'm not on the dating app, then I'm not going to meet the one. And then, you know, someone might be on the site and I'm not going to see them. If you're not in the right headspace, 
even if you were to go on a date with a wonderful person, you're not going to necessarily be in the place to recognize that the person is great because you're just not wanting to, you know, be fully present on that date. So listen to yourself. If you feel like it's time to take a break, delete the apps, have some time to yourself, spend time with your friends or, you know, other relationships, then do that. Um, If you are feeling like it's okay, you're happy to keep chugging along with online dating, uh, a big, a big thing that's really, really important, put up a photo. I know that a lot of people are sometimes hesitant to put up a photo because they don't, I mean, right now I think the stigma for online dating has largely decreased and now it seems to be the main way that people are meeting significant others. But I do know some people that they say that they don't necessarily want others to know they're online dating, so they don't want to put up a photo. You are statistically more likely to get more hits on your dating profile if you do put up a photo. So put one up. Um... Put up photos that represent who you are as a person. Don't try to represent yourself um, in a way that isn't authentic to who you are. I'm sure everyone's heard of like, you know, catfishing before, which is when, yeah, 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 catfishing. So there's this really great term, which people are using, and I just learned it. It's kitten fishing, which is, Hmm. so kitten fishing is basically, there's two kind of definitions for it. One is when you either put up a really old photo of yourself, so it's technically you, but doesn't really look like you anymore. But the other, which I think is more relevant, is when you put up photos of yourself doing things that you don't actually do. So you might be a person who hates the outdoors, but you go and you put a bunch of photos of like you hiking because you're just like, oh, now I'm going to attract a whole bunch more people to my profile because I've got those hiking photos. But if that's not you, don't do that because that's kind of disingenuous and you wouldn't want a person to see these like staged photos or whatever they are or from that one time that you went hiking and then think that this is something that you love to do because then you're not likely to get along with one another because you have different different interests. So just mm. represent who you are. Um, and, you know, you can still, I, I think, especially after, you know, post-pandemic, a lot of people are really wanting to meet one another out in the real world. So even if you are connecting on this, on a dating site, getting to that date so that you can connect in person and really kind of like assess whether or not the two of you are well-matched for one another and that you do have this interpersonal connection, that is important. So as quickly as you can, and of course, once you're feeling comfortable, get to that in-person date. I heard when I was, I did some online dating um, when I was in New York, but I heard at the time somebody say the term online dating really did a disservice because a lot of people then just stay on the apps Mm -hmm. and they stay in the DMs and they just don't meet in person. So they said, think of it instead of online dating as online introducing And then the dating has to happen outside of the app. So you're just introduced to a person and then you take that whole mindset shift of I'm not dating on the app. I'm dating off the app in person, which really was helpful to me because I feel like a lot of the conversations can just go on and on and on. It's kind of safe and comfortable in the app. Exactly. Exactly. Scarier in person. (laughs) Yeah. It's basically, you know, it's, it's, 
could be creating like a pen pal kind of relationship. And look, you know, during the pandemic, it was great. And I actually, that's when we saw the rise of video dating, which was really wonderful because it wasn't safe to, to gather. Um, So I thought that that was wonderful for that period of time. And look, if you feel more comfortable having like a video call, whether it's in the app or just something like FaceTime, before you meet that person to just kind of like get a sense of, you know, who is this person? Is this person accurately representing themselves in their profile? Then go for it. But that back and forth for like weeks or even sometimes months can really do a disservice and get like, exactly like you said, it's the online introduction, but it's in, in real life dating. That's important. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know if after all of your research, have you changed your mind about anything in terms of what makes a solid, happy relationship? So maybe going into that lab you created, you thought one thing, and now based on all of the evidence you collected, you believe something different? Hmm. Um, change, I guess the one thing, and it's kind of like that misconception that I kind of touched on before, was that idea of, you know, don't go to bed angry. Mm. <laughs> that was, you know, I, I was very much of the mindset where it's just kind of like quick, you know, be, be quick to come to some sort of compromise or a resolution. And in fact, you know, at certain times in certain situations that might be helpful and it might be what is called for, but we don't necessarily want to force our partner to engage in a conversation when they're not in the right, like I said before, if they're feeling like, you know, flooded or, you know, it's not the right time to have that conversation, but allowing the conversation to unfold when people are both feeling able to fully engage and be present in that conversation. And also to know that doesn't need to end in some sort the resolution doesn't need to be a compromise um Mm. people don't need to necessarily give something up it might be one person's way or the other person's way but it's about the process of having that conversation and fully understanding one another that's important and sometimes it does take time I love the shift on the don't go to bed angry thing because Mm -hmm. I feel like let's say an argument happens as you are going to bed both people are tired. Mm-hmm. Nothing good is going to come from that. So if you just put yourself to bed and then wake up and revisit it, it's not that you have to go to bed and just brush it under the rug. But when you wake up feeling refreshed, it probably it might even melt away or it might not be as big of a deal as it was at night. But I feel like nothing really good can come from an 11 p.m. disagreement when both people are super tired and all they want to do is sleep exactly because then you're either just like at at a certain point you might be rushing through things just to be like all right like what what do I need to say to end this conversation so I can go to bed or you might just be so tired that you're just like saying things that aren't characteristic of how you would normally communicate with your partner and you definitely don't want to wind up in that space either so sometimes just you know sleeping on it and then coming back when you're more clear-headed, that is so important. Yeah, I love that. Well, one of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Mm. So for me, I want to say the health investment means being mindful 
to check in with yourself and with your health. And this can be physiological or psychological. So um, it's also expansive in that you're not just focusing on the individual, but you're focusing on your relationships as well and prioritizing those that are meaningful and fulfilling. So you're constantly checking in to see how you and how your loved ones are doing. What I don't, have you heard of the blue zones idea? No, no. So the blue zones are these areas in the world where people, there's the most centenarians. Mm-hmm. So people live to a hundred plus and they're typically healthy up until the day they die. They're not, you know, ridden with some type of illness for the last 10, 15 years of their life. Mm-hmm. And one, it's a lot of focus on, you know, their movement and their diet, but one of the really cool things about the people in the blue zones is how much they emphasize relationships mm. and community. And that's a critical piece of every single one of these areas cultures. And so I think that's a cool way to think about health as well as like, how am I cultivating awesome relationships in my life? Oh, I love that. I love that. Connection is so powerful. Yeah. And as we saw when we kind of lost a lot of our connection in COVID, Mm -hmm. I mean, so rough those, especially those first months when we were pretty much just in our home with our significant other roommates or whoever ourselves, you know, challenging, very challenging. Yes. Yes. It definitely tested us as individuals and it definitely tested relationships because it was a very, very difficult time to spend hours and days and weeks on end, you know, cramped in, you know, for, for many people, sometimes in a small apartment, trying to balance work and life and, and just even just the fear of everything that was going on. Yeah. The ultimate test. To yeah, any the ultimate test. <laughs> we like to joke now, like if we made it through that, we can exactly make it through anything. anything. <laughs> yeah. Where can listeners follow and find you? So you can find me on all social media platforms. Just look for Marissa T. Cohen. And that is Marissa with one S. So M-A-R-I-S-A. And you can also find um, information about me, including my upcoming events and workshops on my website, which is www.marissatcohen.com. Awesome. I'll put links to the books you mentioned, your social media and your website all in the show notes. And I just want to thank you so much, Marissa. I don't play favorites with podcast guests, but I told you we were going to talk for 40, 45 minutes and we're almost at 50 minutes. I could honestly talk to you all day. So this was such an enriching conversation for me and I know it was, or it will be for my audience as well. So thank thank you so much. much Thank you so much. And we didn't hear any of the tree getting chopped down. So I count that as a win. (laughs) Which is perfect. And now I just got to go see what the end product is. I'm nervous about that, but. I know, hopefully it's still there. Yeah, hopefully I have some tree left because I loved it. (laughs) Well, thanks again. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition 
and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.